Welcome to That Jewish News Show. I'm Laura E. Adkins, the Forward's Opinion Editor. And I'm Benjamin Cohen, our News Director. And we're covering a lot today, right, Benjamin? Yeah. First, uh, I want to tell everybody we have a great guest coming up uh, later, a little, little later on the show. We'll be speaking with Jonathan Friedland. He's the host of the popular Unholy podcast. But we really are excited to have him on because he will be telling us about his new book, The Escape Artist, which is just now out in paperback. And it's about the incredibly true story of the first, uh, I think the first or one of the first Jews to escape Auschwitz. And it just recently won the uh, National Jewish Book Award. And I think it also recently landed on the New York Times bestseller list. So he will be joining us uh, in a few minutes. But first, Laura, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in in several days. Where have you been? Yeah, I know. I've done like four states in three days or something like that. I was in Texas, as we mentioned last week, for my best friend's bachelorette party. It was a lot of fun. It's warm there, which is nice. Um, and I was just in Baltimore visiting a friend in residency. Highly recommend the Baltimore Art Museum for anyone semi-local. It's free and it has a lot of great modern stuff and a nice outdoor space as well. I saw, yeah, I saw on your uh, Instagram feed some of your uh, pictures yes. from the museum. <laughs> Sharing art with the masses. <laughs> yeah. What's up on farm life? Farm life is good. I did something really uh, interesting this, well, I thought it was interesting. Was it last night or two nights ago? Uh, as our devoted listeners know, I have a book coming out uh in less than two months called the Einstein effect. Yes. And I participated uh, Tuesday night in a thing. The Jewish book council is a, is a nonprofit organization that helps promote the works of Jewish authors. And uh, they have, um, they help Jewish, they connect Jewish communities like uh, local JCCs and synagogues who are hosting book festivals in the fall. They help connect them with authors of new books. And so all the authors of new books each year audition it's kind of like an American Idol audition. You have two minutes Amazing. to I love it. pitch. <laughs> That's my kind of American Idol. Smart, <laughs> thoughtful people talking about books. <laughs> yeah, two minutes to pitch. And there's probably, you know, you know, 100 or 200 Jewish cities represented who are watching in the audience. This year, the auditions were, were virtual on Zoom. And so, but anyway, they turn off your microphone after two minutes. So I, I practiced nice. several times and cut a bunch of things. So it was exactly... Two minutes. So hopefully I'll be invited. Hopefully I'll get to meet a bunch of people across the country this fall. I'm excited about that. that is but uh, the big story before we bring on uh, our guest, Jonathan Friedland, the big story we wanted to just touch base on because it's it's hot off the press. Uh, and we've been tracking this story and excited about this story all week. Uh, the White House released uh, today, this morning, just a few minutes before we jumped on this podcast, its comprehensive national plan to combat anti-Semitism. It's been in the works for months, and the Biden administration consulted with lots of Jewish organizations. I, we skimmed it quickly before we got on. It looks like it has about 200 policy recommendations uh, related to synagogue security, online harassment, even some stuff in there about celebrating Jewish heritage. And leading up to the release of the report, there was a lot of debate exactly, okay, well, what is anti-Semitism? And some people wanted mm. to, it, it to include anti-Zionism or anti-Israel activism. And there were other people who argued, well, you know, it's fair to criticize the Israeli government without venturing into anti-Semitism. I'd recommend to our listeners, if you haven't already, check out our colleague Arno Rosenfeld wrote a 
big uh, story this morning that's on our site, forward.com. We'll put a link in the show notes, basically about this debate, about what is anti-Zionism and what they were going to be including in the report. Laura, what are your uh, initial thoughts on on the Biden anti-Semitism plan? Yeah, so many thoughts. I mean, as folks know, I traveled to Poland and Germany with the second gentleman earlier this year, and they were already talking about concretizing parts of this plan then. A lot of the meetings in Germany in particular were gaining insights from international partners on like specific strategies. And all of the reporters there, very much including myself, kept pushing, like, what are the specifics? What are the actual tangible action items that this administration is going to do, given you've said this is a big priority from the jump? Um, so I was very excited to see that there are actually concrete things. Some of them seem a bit more helpful than others. Uh, for example, education, Holocaust education is very buzzy, but there's actually not a lot of evidence that it does much. One of the recommendations that stood out to me um, is like a call for youth sports leagues to talk about anti-Semitism. I just I don't see that necessarily helping or being the right place for that. Um, just have more Jews on your team. Um, but I do think that the emphasis on security in particular, there, there were four main components of this plan. The first was education. The second was like tangible security for synagogues and Jewish communities. And then pillars three and four are a little more amorphous, like building community solidarity and countering discrimination, which are hard to measure the efficacy of. So I, I think yeah. my big thought is it's really good that we have something concrete. And now, you know, they've said also in the plan that they expect all of these things to be implemented within a year. So we can hold the administration to task on concrete things, which is always easier than when a politician just says, you know, we're committed to outing hate. And it's like, great. How do you measure that? So, yeah, what were your what were your thoughts? Also, I, I thought that Arno explained the really wonky debate over definitions in a very clear way. But what what stood out to you about about the reporter, about Arno's framing of this whole conversation? There was one interesting detail in Arno's. I mean, there was a lot of interesting details in his story. But one thing that popped out in my eye was he revealed that the this initiative, this whole um White House strategy uh, was initially sparked by the Kanye West incidents in the fall, uh, <laughs> which, you know, I guess we Maybe. could, <laughs> I guess we could say, you know, if anything, you know, good came from the Kanye manifest manifestos and outrages back in the fall, it's, it's, uh, I guess this is pretty uh, interesting that it, that it came from that. And also that there's, you know, we've seen obviously an increase in the rise of anti-Semitism uh, each right. year. So, th so that it's important. So, my, my larger issue is like, you know, is it, it's, it's, you know, I'm sure it, it's very, you know, it's a nice idea. It's going to garner some good headlines. The White House can say they're doing something. But like you said, you know, what's going to be a year from now? Is, is anti-Semitism going to go down a year from now? Are there going to be practical differences in the daily lives of Jewish Americans? Yeah, I think there's a tension within the administration on anti-Semitism that comes from, if you look at the two key players here, right, the two national figureheads of this, the first one much bigger than the other, Doug Emhoff, he isn't really an expert in anti-Semitism. He was right. thrust into this role by both President Biden and his wife, Vice President Harris, 
who both really pushed him to make anti-Semitism and combating anti-Semitism a priority. Now, certainly he's he's filled those shoes well, but like many American Jews, it is more reminded by his Judaism and pushed into roles that he didn't necessarily think he'd be working on. I mean, his he wanted his priority to be abortion access and women's rights and more general progressive things. But because of who he is and what he symbolizes, I think this role got thrust onto him. And the other key player, of course, is Deborah Lipstadt, who's yeah. been combating anti-Semitism and working on it from a very thoughtful and academic perspective for decades. And you know, it's a lot easier now for her to get things done with the attention that the second gentleman is bringing to this issue. So you you have kind of the the platitudes on one side and the practicals coming together. I mean, I think they <laughs> it's a very funny combo of players, but having seen them sort of together, like they, they do actually work well on this issue together. I was say, you like you said, you spent time with uh, Doug Emhoff and Deborah Lipstadt on a trip to Auschwitz in January. Yeah. And I, yeah. like I was going to ask you like the, the dynamic between them. Do you think Deborah Lipstadt at all feels that she's being marginalized or pushed to the background because Dag Emhoff is getting all this attention? I wouldn't say so. I, I think something that I really noticed, particularly at the memorial sites, mm-hmm. Deborah Lipstadt, this is not her first rodeo at all. And she, she's she's done this for a long time she's streamlined the process and reactions to it i think there is something very valuable about having fresh eyes on an experience like emoff has not professionally worked on anti-semitism and i think a lot of the energy that he brings to the experiences and to the conversations kind of light a new fire under it and help advance a lot of the deep work that Lipstadt has been doing doing no i think in the contrary she would say that He's brought renewed attention and it's easier for her office to get uh-huh. things done out of the State Department by just the attention that having the second gentleman caring about something brings to things. Well, we will be uh, keeping our eyes on this. Always, I always want to tell people to check out Forward.com every day and our morning newsletter, Forwarding the News, so you can stay uh, abreast of this. It's now time to bring on our guest for the show. Uh, Jonathan Friedland is based in London, where he's a columnist for The Guardian, and he's the co-host of the popular podcast Unholy, Two Jews on the News. He's also the author of a dozen books, including his latest, The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World, uh, which won the National Jewish Book Award and recently landed on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Very nice to see you both. So we wanted to chat with you. I, I devoured your book. Uh, I think I did the audio book, which I think you narrated. Uh, I did. Yes. With the, it's always we're we're such Anglophiles over here. So to hear you read it was was a joy. But I, if you I want for people who are not familiar with the book, can you tell us a little bit about uh, who Rudolf Verba uh, was? He's the main character in your book. He is. This book is, in a way, the life of Rudolf Verber, who did something extraordinary. Age 19, a teenage boy, he escaped from Auschwitz. And uh, Jewish prisoners in Auschwitz basically just didn't do that. I mean, there were less than 10, by my reckoning. Probably, you know, substantially fewer than that. Maybe six, seven, eight. The numbers vary, depending how you count them. But hardly anyone did it. And when he did it, 
next to nobody had ever done it. Um, uh, and so it's an extraordinary feat alone, just that. But on top of that, he did it uh, with a purpose. He did it to warn the world. And incredibly, against all kinds of odds, I mean, just, just getting out alone was a huge achievement. But he actually did get, he together with his escape partner, Fred Wetzler, uh, two Slovak Jews, Rudy was 19, Fred was 25, they pulled off this improbable feat and got out of Auschwitz, crossed Nazi-occupied Europe, um, and sorry, Nazi-occupied Poland, which was an incredibly hard thing to do, crossing rivers and mountains and forests and marshland, only going at night because they didn't dare be seen, uh, you know, the risk of running into Gestapo, running into ethnic Germans or Polish collaborators, hugely dangerous. They made it back to their home country of Slovakia. And there they managed to pour out of them the details of life in Auschwitz, which Rudy in particular had memorized. We'll come on to this perhaps, but he had a freakishly good memory. Uh, and to, those details formed a 32-page report, which somehow went on an escape journey of its own. It was crossed occupied Europe, passed hand to hand in secret by resistance activists and a whole cavalcade of extraordinary characters until it landed on the desk of Winston Churchill in London, Franklin Roosevelt in Washington and the Pope in Rome. And, uh, you know, what happened to the report, again, we'll probably talk about that. But among other things, it did lead to the saving of 200,000 lives, which is why... Hmm. I believe he is a towering figure of this period. I mean, I say in the book, I think he does deserve to be remembered alongside the likes of Anne Frank or Oscar Schindler or Primo Levi, these people whose stories define our understanding of the Shoah. I think he belongs right up there. And yet his name had, um, you know, uh, had been all but forgotten. I think there's a tension when we read stories or watch movies like Defiance that really focus on those who, the Jews that fought back and who were successful in saving others. And I wonder if in this process of researching this book, you came to understand a little bit better in some ways, the Jews that did not escape and the psychology that went into the fact that, I mean, I often heard the line growing up that I think is incredibly cruel and incorrect that there were Jews going like sheep to the slaughter. Um, but clearly there's there's a much larger element going on in the camps. How did your understanding of that maybe evolve or change as you were researching this book? That's a fascinating question. And it goes absolutely to what the core of the book is about. I'm really glad you've asked that because I too grew up with hearing that phrase and grew up being told that's a terrible thing to say. And uh, it, it implies a kind of passivity or weakness in Jews. And you hear it sometimes in Israel, the contrast of strong, muscular Israeli Jews with weaker diaspora Jews. Rudy's story and, and his writings afterwards, and the, you know he was interviewed in a few places, which I used for the book, shed really interesting kind of nuanced light on it. Because in some ways, he said, look, that's not wholly wrong, but there is, but you can't, you know, you say it casually without knowing what, what happened. And what's the key thing? He worked there in Auschwitz, unusually. He was in Auschwitz as a prisoner for 21 months. That already makes him very, very unusual. You know, we all know in this conversation, people listening to it, the, the life expectancy of a Jew in Auschwitz was measured in hours. 
Um, mm. You had to be one of the five or 10% who were taken off those trains and sent to the right to be worked probably to death rather than to the left of the gas chamber. So it's a tiny number. But those people usually did die within two or three months. Rudy Verba, extremely unusual, lived for 21 months. But it meant he was a kind of ultra witness. He was bounced around as a slave in all parts of the camp, everything up to essentially the doors of the gas chambers, he worked there. It meant he had a kind of 360 degree view of what happened in the camp. What he saw, particularly in the 10 months he spent working on the Alta Juden ramp, the old Jew ramp, literally the, the kind of the railway platform where those transports came in. And then later as a registrar, a kind of bureaucrat registering new arrivals, what he came to see was none of them, in his experience, not one, had any idea what fate awaited them. That wasn't by accident. That was because they had been lied to at every step of the way, methodically and very complicatedly lied to by the Nazis and their enablers and were told that they were moving to a new place to be resettled to new life in the East. That's why they brought with them suitcases. That's why they had pots and pans and children's exercise books and children's toys. They believed they were going to set up a new Jewish community in the East. A lot of them had suffered years of pogroms or ghettoization and were kind of relieved that and now last it will start. And the Nazis encouraged that belief at every step of the way, right up to and including the moment where they went into the gas chambers where Jews were told, Remember to tie your shoes together left and right so you won't lose a shoe when you come back out. Uh, remember to tell us your trade because we want to make sure you work in an occupation that suits you. They were told their lives were about to restart. And that is why they complied, as it were, and lined up for selection in columns of rows of five and so on. It's not because they were somehow innately passive or weak. It was because they had been deceived and Verber, Verber's great understanding, amazing, because he was a teenager, he was an 18-year-old, was this huge insight, which was that this deception wasn't a sort of added or macabre feature uh, addition. It was essential to the Nazi method because they had constructed a kind of industrialized Henry Ford assembly line of death. And for that to operate smoothly, they needed the victims to comply he said in an interview, really, it's much easier to kill sheep than hunt deer. And what he meant by that very you know, resting phrase was orderly columns of people you can kill in a systematized, fact, industrial method. If Jews had scattered and panicked because they knew their fate, then they would have been like deer on the hillside, you know, where the SS would have had to pick them off one at a time with a rifle, time consuming and flawed because some would have got away mm -hmm. so deception was at the heart of it and so i think it is very helpful now when we look back why did they do that it's because this was the best kept secret watertight secret in europe and people who arrived there had no idea of what their fate was was we in retrospect do know and so therefore we wonder why did you just go completely they didn't mm. know this goes what you just said speaks to something I don't want to jump too much ahead, but at the end of the book, you know, he he escapes and part of the reason, you know, once once he escapes, he wants to warn 
in particular the half million Hungarian Jews who were yet to be transported to Auschwitz from getting on the train. And like I'm reading that, and I'm I'm thinking as I'm reading that, Jonathan, what do you mean? Like they don't they didn't have a choice about getting on the train, but it's I guess it's like what you were just saying. If there was some sort of rebellion, it wouldn't have been as easy for the Nazis to do that. Well, th- th- this is right, and and it's very important this because young as he was, he was not naive, and he didn't have sort of delusions of you know an armed revolt and an armed uprising he knew that these were included people every saw every train arrive he saw 300 transports in his life there he knew that they were old people frail sick he knew there were very young people including children you know very young children babies he knew they had no access to weapons so he did not think i'm going to get this information there and then they're going to you know mount a sort of spartacus type revolt he knew that was impossible all he thought was they might panic if they have the information that they are about to be sent to gas chambers to be murdered it would be a natural impulse to panic there could be a stampede there could be chaos that alone he understood would throw sand in the gears of the nazi killing machine it might not halt it it might not save all of them and in fact he knew that some would die in that process because some would be you know gunned down by the ss who as they tried to bring order but he thought at least some might get away at the moment he knew that the kill rate was a hundred percent they were managing to kill whoever they wanted to kill so he saw this as a relentless industrialized machine and the only thing you could hope to do was at least throw some sand in the gears of that machine in the case of hungary they may have been able to do even more than that because some were in the provinces were close to the romanian border the romanian authorities were at that point saying if people escaped they would let them in a lot of Jews were just a matter of kilometers away from that border. They didn't mm. think to escape because nobody ever told them right. if when you've got it at the end of that railway line is yeah. death. So how did Walter Rosenberg pull off the actual escape itself? And what happened to him as a person afterward? So Walter Rosenberg, of course, being the name that Rudy Verber was born into, um, Rudolf Verber was a kind of a code name that was given to him after the escape, and he liked it and stuck with it. Um, the details of of the escape itself, I sort of tend to hold that back because I want people to read the book. It is, to my mind, an absolutely thrilling adventure story. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I think a lot of, I may, this may be a British thing, but I think a, particularly a lot of boys slash men of my generation grew up reading Second World War escape stories. This mm. is, to my mind, and I'm obviously biased, but I think this is the most extraordinary of all of them. It turned on, yes, extraordinary physical courage and resilience and strength, but what I, why I think it's an amazing story is it absolutely uh, was built on ingenuity, that the young Verber and Wetzler had spotted a loophole in uh, the Nazi defences. You know, they hadn't spotted a physical gap, but they'd spotted a loophole, and they used that against the Nazis themselves. Um, you know, what it required of them physically is, I think, jaw-dropping and people who've read it say it's, you know, they're turning the pages like it's an adventure story, how they did it. But they did, they, they that was amazing itself. In terms of the rest of his life, um, he was kind of haunted by the the limited response to his report. He believed, sitting there in Auschwitz, the only reason why the world has not acted to stop this is because they don't know. 
obviously if the allies if if the us if the if the brits knew what was going on here they would act to stop it immediately so it can only be a question of information he thought he gets the information out and the killing continues and that kind of bafflement would haunt him for the rest of his life he wasn't one of those who focused huge amounts of energy on the allied failure to bomb the railway tracks although that's definitely part of it what really ate away at him was the reaction of the a very specific and i want to broaden it out one or two individuals at the leadership of the hungarian jewish community who received the report when the ink was still wet i mean on the end of april 1944 verber and wetzler have poured this evidence out of them the report is written and the you know the jewish community official in slovakia makes a journey to hand it to the leader of the Jews of, Ka- uh, of Hungary, a man called Reju Kastner, continues to be a hugely contro- controversial figure. And Kastner, for reasons which we could get into, does not pass on that warning. He keeps that information to himself. And that is the thing that I think Rudolf Werber, uh, among other things, that he could not forgive. He could not forgive that failure to pass on his warning. As I said before, he wasn't convinced that if you did it immediately, there would suddenly be an armed uprising. No, but he thought at least give the people getting on those trains the knowledge that gives them a chance to take action. And Kastner sat on that information. He sat on that report. And the result was, as Rudy would certainly see, it was that in May and June, over a 56-day period in the summer of 1944, 437,000 Jews uh, in Hungary were deported to Auschwitz overwhelming majority of them murdered and those were lives he believed could have been saved with information because they were people they were the jews of europe who were killed after the word had got out there was no need as it were for them to go into that terrible dark place uh, in the dark ignorant of their fate and that ate away at him even though when the report months later in june finally made it and you know we all three of us i think would uh, feel this thank god it finally made it to a journalist right it makes it i mean uh, you know it makes yeah. it to a into to the hands of a british journalist a man called walter garrett an agency journalist in zurich he gets this report late june and then thinks this is obviously the story of the century he publishes it word then spreads across Europe very, very quickly in days. It shows you how how quickly it would have been to get this word out if it had just found the right person. And then at that point, Roosevelt in Washington, the Pope in Rome, send messages to the leader in Hungary to say, halt these deportations. And guess what he does? And they were just about to get the Jews of the capital city, Budapest, 200,000 or so Jews there. And those people, instead of being deported to Auschwitz at that point, were not which is as a direct result, in my view, of the Verba-Wetzler report, which is why I think the two of them deserve to be regarded as giants of this period. But what was odd, in, to, to, to your question, uh, Laura, is that Verba himself hardly thought about the 200,000 he'd saved. Like a lot of rescuers, he was obsessed with the lives he didn't save. And yeah. it wasn't on him. It was on the people who'd failed to pass on his warning. But that really ate away at him. You know, so he escapes and he he's kind of starts over in, in Canada. 
And then what I found interesting in your book was in his later years, he wasn't treated like a typical Holocaust survivor. Was it like he almost was uninvited from some Holocaust events? Why, why is that? Well, the two things are really related. I mean, one of, one of the questions I really wondered about all the time was how come no one else has written this story before? It's so mm -hmm. huge. Why isn't he more famous? You know, he wrote his own story very, very well in 1963, uh, a memoir tellingly titled I Cannot Forgive, which I think is revealing. But otherwise he had, you know, he was interviewed by Claude Landsman in the film Shoah, that nine and a half hour epic. That's where I first came across Rudy's story when I myself was 19 and it stayed with me all those years in between. But he wasn't famous. And part of that is because he was not um, the typical Holocaust survivor. And I say those words like that because those are the ones Rudy himself used. I found a letter from him to a BBC TV producer in which he said who's invited him to come on a documentary film. And Rudy says, I must warn you, I am not your cliched Holocaust survivor. And what he meant by that was, I'm not going to serve up a slightly comforting narrative in which all the evil resides in Hitler and the Nazis and everyone else behaved brilliantly. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell you that story. Instead, I'm going to point out, of course, um, the Germans willing collaborators in many countries. And I'm also going to talk about the failures of the Allied leaders and, yes, even Jewish leaders to pass on the warning that he, Rudolf Werber, had, had done everything and stretched every possible human sinew to get out. And people didn't really want to hear that. And I spoke to somebody in Vancouver in Canada, where Rudy lived the last 30 years of his life as a uh, associate professor of uh, biochemistry at the University of British Columbia, one of his colleagues. And he said, look, we used to organize in Vancouver an annual uh, symposium for high school students about the Holocaust, and we would have a panel of Holocaust survivors. And yet, even though they had this ultimate survivor, an escapee, a hero, and a witness to Auschwitz, they didn't invite him. They invited other survivors. And Vancouver is not a huge Jewish community that they can, they've got, you know, so many people to turn away. Why? I said, you know, I asked him, why would you? He said, because when Rudolf Herber spoke, you never knew uh, how soon he would descend into accusations and rage. They didn't want a survivor standing up there being angry, pointing an accusing finger at all those who had failed and let down the Jews. And I realized writing it that we actually have these very unfair expectations on Holocaust survivors. We expect them to speak in this kind of consoling, healing, wise voice that somehow makes us feel better. You know, we expect them to be very kind of Zen and give us a spiritually uplifting message that in the end, all people are good. Um, and there are people who do this. You know, there were there was a Holocaust survivor whose book was called The Happiest Man in the World. You know, that's the survivor we want. And Verbal refused to be that. He was angry. He was furious at the failures that had led to so many to die that he believed could have been saved. And so slowly, bit by bit, the invitations dried up. They didn't come. And bit by bit, he became less famous and or not famous. I mean, he wasn't famous to start with, but he never those invitations, you know, they were they they became rarer. The handful of people who did seek him out were, I think, the, fascinatingly to me, they were people who really are giants in the field. So Claude Landsman with Shoah, Martin Gilbert, author, Sir Martin Gilbert, historian. These are people who made their way to Rudolf Verber. But generally, 
he was allowed to get more or less forgotten. Specialist historians, of course, know his name. But when I was researching this, I would mention his name to people really knowledgeable on Jewish matters, and they did not know this name. And one of the projects of this book is to is for him to get the recognition he after his death that he absolutely should have got in his lifetime. As we wrap up here, I'm curious what most surprised you in doing research for this book and what modern day lessons you hope folks take away from it. Well, there was one, I'll do two surprises because one was sort of very specific and the other is general. I mean, the the, the uh, some small surprise was I was not aware that there was this permanent bureaucracy, administrative staff in Birkenau made up of Jewish prisoners. I didn't know that. Rudy was part of that. He was a registrar. Um, and there was about two or 300 of them who, by the end, did not have to wear the regulation clothes. They could wear sort of semi-civilian clothes. They were still slaves. They still had the tattooed number on their forearm. They were prisoners in Auschwitz. But they had this other position partly secured for them through the resistance. It's an, you know, there was an Auschwitz underground. Again, I think I only dimly knew of that. That was a bit of a revelation to, to read the detail of that. So there were things like that. And, I, you know, it's been very heartening for me that people who say, you know, I really thought I knew everything about Auschwitz. But now that I've read your book, I realize I just don't. And that's the experience I went through. The bigger point about that you've asked is the lesson that people take away. And I think it is about truth um, and facts and listening to evidence. And what I've realized is there is this very human defect, which is when we are told something terrible, we have all kinds of mechanisms to allow us to not face it. That the There's a story in the book about Rudy going to see the, not Rudy, so forgive me, Jan Karski, a, a Polish resistance figure in a different context, he went to see Felix Frankfurt, a Jewish Supreme Court judge, and told him that, look, the Germans are killing Jews. This way, he didn't know anything about Auschwitz at that point. And um, Frankfurter says to him, uh, I don't believe you. And the man who's brought this envoy from Poland says, you must believe him. He's got all the credentials and letters of guarantee. He says, no, no, I didn't say he was not telling the truth. I said, I do not believe him. These are different things. I cannot believe what you're telling me. No, 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 says Judge Frankfurt. It's a human response that when we hear about the climate emergency or Russians hear from their relatives that Ukraine is being bombed, we a, a kind of protective mechanism kicks in where we put fingers on our ears and want to say that that can't be true. And Rudy Verba and Fred Wetzler, they ran headlong into that human impulse of uh, of a kind of willed incredulity they didn't want to face it and in the book is a quote from raymond aron the french jewish philosopher who says i knew but i didn't believe about the holocaust and because i didn't believe i didn't know and that's what i've come to understand is what we think of as knowledge is facts and information are not enough for something to become truly known we have to believe it and we struggle with that Jonathan, this has been really great. The book is, uh, again, it's called The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World. It is now out in paperback. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time. I know we kept you a little longer than we promised, but appreciate it. <laughs> Good to be with you both. And, um, and thanks for having me on. Thank All right. you. Take care.
when I first read this book uh, a few months ago, I told Jonathan it was the best Holocaust book I ever read. Uh, I, I mean, it sounds weird to say that, but not just because it has a happy ending because someone escaped from Auschwitz, but just because um, uh, he was doing it for such noble purposes that he was trying to warn others and, and save. And when he sounds like he did, saved hundreds of thousands of Jews from getting on the train to Auschwitz. So I encourage yeah. all of our listeners to pick up a copy of The Escape Artist, which I'm told is being turned. I think I read it's being turned into a, a movie or a TV show. Ooh, fascinating. So there yeah. are, there will be options for folks. <laughs> yes. And if there's not, uh, contact Jonathan's agent. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Well, thank you, Benjamin. This was really fascinating. I think I'm going to go read the new anti-Semitism report more thoroughly so we can <laughs> keep covering it for you guys. Yeah. But we will see you next week. That Jewish News Show is hosted and produced by me, Laura E. Adkins, and Benjamin Cohen. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review That Jewish News Show wherever you're listening. We'd be ever so grateful if you'd share today's episode with a friend or two. You can reach me and Benjamin at thatjewishnewsshow at forward.com or by calling or texting 201-228-0412. That Jewish News Show is a production of The Forward. Our editor-in-chief is Jody Rudoran, and our CEO is Rachel Fishman Federson. Our theme music is by The Fly Guy 5. The Forward Association is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. The Forward was founded in 1897. We'll see you next week. <laughs>